0: Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt.
0: We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships.
1: If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place.
0: Here we go. I'm nervous about our podcast next week, Sherry. I am, too. Want to tell our listeners what we're doing next week?
1: Um, we're interviewing our oldest child.
0: It's going to be her chance to tell her story.
1: Yep. She's 21 and has been brave enough to come on the podcast to share. So, yeah, it'll be a hard one.
0: So what are you nervous about?
1: Um, well, I kind of feel nervous for her um just you know sharing her story yeah i'm not so much nervous like like we're going to be surprised by things that have happened yeah it's just going to be hurtful to hear again but i don't want her to like hide it cuz it'll help others
0: yeah i i'm i'm with you i i i know that her experience that my drinking caused a lot of pain, and I know that we're going to hear a lot about that. And I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not nervous that we're going to hear something. Oh, actually, I'm confident we're going to hear something we don't know about. I'm confident we're going to hear something that's a little unexpected. Probably 95% of it will not be new, but I bet there'll be something that this will be the first time we hear it. I'm just guessing, but I'm not, I'm not nervous that like she's going to embarrass me. It's nothing like that. I'm with you you we have i think we have a good relationship with our daughter and that it's getting better and that we're working on authenticity and vulnerability and transparency and all of that with her and doing everything we can to repair damage done but i still feel like it's not it's not like when you and i sit down and talk and you know i pretty much know what you're going to say and and there's a there's it's just I mean, she's our daughter. Neither of us are married to her, so it's it's what you would expect. It's different. So I'm nervous for her, too.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm sure there will be stuff that is new, and I think she's being brave enough and, and like, letting us know a little bit of stuff that's going on or, how you know, and speaking up for herself. I think, yeah, there will be stuff that we don't know, but I don't feel like it's going to be necessarily... Shocking, Yeah. You know, it'll be things that you and I have kind of read about a little bit, or where we think that they didn't understand
2: this, or some of her feelings, you know. And also, it's hard just to hear a perspective on things when you know, and I know, that there were a lot of good times. But, just like those pictures, you know, in family albums, everybody has a smile. Well, maybe the night before was a horrible night. Yeah. And maybe that next day wasn't as bad. You know, and then you take the picture, you know, and you know that the night before was bad. So, that's hard to hear that perspective. Because I can just think about all the good things that we did, but they were always overshadowed.
0: Yeah. I think it'll be a, a great example of why talking to our kids is so important about alcohol and about alcohol addiction and just assuming that they aren't picking up on things or that it's not affecting them. I think that's just a huge mistake. It's a mistake yeah. that I made so I'm not blaming anyone but if any of our listeners are thinking that their kids have been protected from this thing I first of all I strongly encourage that you listen to this episode It'll come out July 17th, I think, is right. And uh, so I recommend that you listen to it. I recommend you you formulate your own strategy for talking to your kids. There's two other things I want to mention about the episode, the upcoming episode that we're promoting. The first one is, hey, I know you have been uh, deeply involved in talking to her about whether or not she wanted to do this we didn't coerce her at all we gave her the opportunity and and you know, there's something tied to the opportunity which I'll explain in a second and she very willingly agreed to doing it but you don't know maybe you do, maybe I told you about the timing, I think I just told you it's going to be our 200th episode
1: yes, you did tell me
0: that and I do kind of try to line up Big episode numbers like 100 and 150, and now 200 with something out of the ordinary. And I would say, this is going to be extremely unique. It'll be a first of its kind for us in that it's obviously it's not the first time we've interviewed anybody. It's not the first time we've interviewed someone who's not a clinical expert but is just someone with experience, but it is the first time we've interviewed somebody from that next generation. Everyone that we've interviewed is either roughly our age or I guess in a couple of cases I can think of a generation above us like at least one of the experts I can think of was significantly older than us but it's almost always our peer group and this will be the first time we're interviewing someone from a different from a younger generation well so and I think totally different perspective
1: and this is the first time we've interviewed anybody who's been the child of an alcoholic solely. Um, for that purpose, like we, like, like I'm a child have, of an alcoholic, oh, yes. but I married an alcoholic. Yeah. My, you know, we've interviewed lots of people because that happens. Exposure. But this is, yeah, this is the exposure and this is the angle that we're, pre, you know, we're,
0: yeah,
1: um, gonna make sure that we talk about that.
0: The other reason that this is going to be an important episode is because we are launching a new support group. We have. As our listeners know, our Shout Sobriety group and our Echoes of Recovery group and our Marriage Evolution group for couples. But we're going to launch a new project to do something, a writing group for teens. And one of the reasons that Catherine is telling her story now is because she is going to be facilitating that writing group because we just don't think it makes a lot of sense for one or both people in their 50s. That's you and me. To be trying to connect with teens, so someone like her who has lived experience and is a lot closer to the age of the audience, I think it just makes a lot of sense. So we'll talk more about that on next week's episode. It should be easy to find if you're not listening in order, and you just want to say, "Hey, what are they talking about?" It's episode 200. You can check that out, and uh, if you do, if you do listen on a regular, you know, every time one drops then we hope you're as excited for next week as we are. Ready for the listener question, Sherry? Sure. Uh, Oh, and reminder, if you would like to have us answer one of your questions, listener, just send an email to matt at soberandunashamed.com with your question. You won't get a clinical answer, but you'll get the best that Sherry and I, a couple of Ex-alcoholics and ex-alcoholic spouse. uh, Best we've got to offer. We'd love to to see what your question is. This listener question is, I am so disappointed and angry at my husband's relapses. He is honest about it. He tells me when he's decided to start drinking again. What's a good response when he says he's going to drink? It's a good question. Mm. And I want to hear what you have to say. One, I, I want to be real clear... Make a clarification. You're like Matt. You just can't not talk, can you? <laughs> I, don't I think, think it's, what I have to
1: say, but I have a caveat.
0: Well, no, I just think it's important that we recognize that a lot of the people that we meet and talk with, a lot of the people we hear from, lying and dishonesty is at the top of the list of yeah. problems. More so than the drinking. Yes, I don't like that he drinks, but I hate that he lies to me about it. Right. This person, this one, is a lot closer to home for you, Sherry. What mm-hmm. you experienced. Because this is what I would do. When I, I would go periods of time without drinking, and then I would say, "Sherry, I've,
2: I've made a decision,", a decision.
0: <laughs> and you hated it when I said that.
2: And
1: you said that about a lot of things, but I always hated it when. It didn't matter because I was always worried
2: that it would be something like that.
0: Yeah, but I would rather than trying to sneak it because I just never thought I could get away with it. Not that I was, you know, holier than thou or anything. I just I'm super smart. Didn't think there's any way I could get away with drinking and you not knowing. So, when I decided to drink again, I would tell you. And it sounds like this is that case. So, this person, it sounds like, relapses a lot like me. And th- there, was, there was more to it than just the question. There was a couple of paragraphs that the person sent in. And these this is not, um, you know, quick one off. Like, I've decided I'm going to drink tonight and then I'll be sober again tomorrow. This is periods of sobriety, then periods of active addiction. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think, Sherry? What's a good response when he says he's going to drink? Wow.
1: Well, I don't feel like I ever gave you a good response. What are some I bad responses? <laughs> some bad
2: responses are probably what they're doing.
1: Um, I'd be like, "What the hell?" You know, blah, blah. like I remember one of the last times I said, "Well, then you're going to have to tell the kids because you had made a big production about telling the older kids that you were going to stop drinking." And I, I was forgot like, "About that." And I was like, well, if you're going to start drinking again, you need to go and explain to the kids. Yeah. Um, You know, probably just our daughter at that time, being the oldest. Um, Maybe
0: the boys all together. Um, Maybe we should ask her about that next week. That's interesting because my recollection of that was that, okay, a challenge accepted. That's not wonderful. I'm not looking forward to it, but... I don't think our my drinking has impacted them nearly as much as you do, Sherry, so it won't be any big deal. And I think when I told her uh I got very little response. I didn't get a oh great or who cares or do whatever you want. But I didn't get you know, crushing anger either. I got very little response, and yeah, I think cause that's because she hid almost all of her emotions for me at that time. Certainly, all of them around my drinking. Yeah. So I probably crushed her and didn't know it. Yeah,
1: and I thought that that would stop you. I thought, you can't do that to your kids. Because, you know, the time, you, I just thought, no way. And then I was like, what a scumbag. Um, so, you know, I guess, like, in hindsight, a good response would be, Okay, if you choose to drink, we're going to have some more, you know, we're going to have... I, I know that rules, when you put rules around it, but you can say, I'm going to have a boundary. So, like, when you're drinking, and and if you're doing it around me, I'm not going to be around you. I'm going to leave. You're not going to chase me. I'm going to leave. Whether it's taking the kids and going to a hotel or a friend or neighbor or whatever, or you're not coming home. Like, you know, you can do what you want, but I'm not going to be around you. Um, And I know that rules go out the window as soon as like, that first beer is in or drink is in that person so the drinker so that's really hard to enforce so you have to make it something that you can do to be able to leave and be prepared to leave if you feel like you don't want to be around the drinking I, I just
0: that's interesting I think that's important because as we meet all these different people there are different power dynamics in different relationships you're right, I would not have left and you would have would been very
1: have, adamant about not letting me leave with the kids. Yeah,
0: I would have been really just a worse nightmare. I mean, not I wouldn't have gotten physical, but anything short of physical, I would have been a, your worst nightmare. But we do know people where they can say to their alcoholic spouse, if you drink, you're not staying here, and that person respects that, mm-hmm. at least most of the time, right? Like you said, once they get some drinks in them, maybe they don't. But, but the... You know, respect level is there, the power, however you want to say that, so that they can, that person does leave. I mean, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll just flat out say, hey, when my husband drinks, I kick him out. And yeah. I always think, wow, that's, I'm glad that, I'm glad that that works yes, for sir. you. But that, that willingness to do whatever it takes to separate yourself, I think is important. The other thing that's important that you said is you used I statements, you said boundaries you're not punishing the alcoholic you're telling the alcoholic you can do whatever you want to do I choose to no longer be around drinking and so that means either you've got to leave or I've got to leave and by the way I'm taking the kids when I go yeah. so making it not a punishment, That this is something you and I didn't understand when I was actively drinking, if you had gotten to the point where you were you know not going to be around me you would have said you got to get out of here you know You you would have made it a me thing. And I'm not being critical of you. We just didn't know any better. Yeah. That I statement piece is important. Yeah.
1: And even if it's not like leaving the house, but like separating. Yeah. I mean, I know when, well, we don't have a big couch to sleep on, but then we did have a guest room for a while, before we decided to split the kids up into more of the rooms in our very gargantuous house, ha, 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 sarcasm, Um, you would always be worried that they were going to wake up and see me sleeping somewhere else. Um, So depending on your age of your kids, and I just think if you're keeping an open conversation and maybe not keeping things in the shadow and you use those I statements and you let the kids know what's going on, you say, you know, I'm going to sleep in a different room and you're not going to bother me, the kids are not going to be freaked out, you know,
0: we do know people who have very successfully separated within the same house Mm -hmm. they've set up a bedroom and an office in the basement given neutral kitchen you know uh, not authority but access and everyone's got their own bathroom and other than passing each other in the driveway and in the kitchen you are for all intents and purposes separated we have seen that work Mm -hmm. for, for some people
1: yeah, so. and if you're not, I mean, you know, like, to that point, you're not hiding anything from the kids, really. Yeah. And they're not going to really put that much together. So if they're, like, little and you don't want to share with them because you don't know how to... But it can always be just like, oh, Daddy was snoring too much, so I'm sleeping here. Or, you know, it doesn't always have to be the guys that are drinking. I don't know why I always say that. I think it's just because that's what I know from is. my history. But, you know, so it's, it's not like you're going to terrorize the kids by you two sleeping in separate rooms
0: notice listener that we didn't offer suggestions for what you can say to smooth things over or try to help the drinker drink less or try to make them know that you still love them in our experience both personal experience and working with other people your marriage your relationship is has no chance of being successful until the alcohol is gone and your individual recovery has no chance of being successful until you have found a way to not participate in the alcohol. So back when I was still actively drinking and trying to moderate and and learning a lot about the disease, the advice might have been about how to communicate better you know, while someone's drinking. That's just not advice that we offer anymore. That's not experience that we think is is doable anymore. It's it's just amount it's just a matter of time. If your spouse is experiencing long-term relapses with periods of sobriety in between, it's a matter of time between either the sobriety or or separation, divorce, or just continued misery.
1: And I think that there were times that I would say, "Well, that really is disappointing. Like I'm really disappointed in you, Matt, that you're going to start drinking again." Well, then that just adds to the shame. And then it gave you something to feel bad about and then later come out to me. You know, I could probably have said, well, that makes me really sad because I liked it when you were drinking and sober. And that's something that Amber from Put the Shovel Down um, YouTube channel has said, like trying to highlight when they're not drinking the positives. Um, So I don't think if you were to say that makes me sad, I like it when you're not drinking. I don't think that's terrible to say, yeah. but to say, I'm disappointed in you, or that, you know. Because yeah, I then think, I think then you would have taken that to heart, it would have made you drink more, then you would have had something to be angry with me about later on, to say I'm sad
0: that that's your choice, but you can do what you want.
1: So I like in it, but... Yeah.
0: In, this, in this listener question, this person is just anticipating that her currently sober husband is going to come to her and say that he's going to start drinking, so... I think what you and I are both saying is prepare your boundaries. Figure out what that means, whether that's under the same roof separation or something bigger than that. Figure out what it's going to be and be ready to go when he comes to you and says he's going to start drinking again. And it doesn't have to be anger filled. Like you just said, it doesn't have to be shame filled. It can be a statement of fact.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I am not going to be around alcohol anymore. So one way or the other, we aren't going to be living in the same place if you're going to be drinking. Me, that's that, that uh, simple but incredibly complex to execute. Whew, wish there was an easy answer. So, let's keep talking about relapses. There are two types of relapses. Correct me if I'm wrong, Sherry, if you can think of a third category, but I'm separating relac- relapses into two short term relapses and long term relapses. You know, it, is that I mean, I guess that's Yeah. Uh, it's, kind it's of a either binary thing. Yeah. There's short and long short and then the opposite of short which is long. <laughs> yeah. God, what a stupid question. Can't believe I write this stuff down and then I still <laughs> say dumb stuff. <laughs> so the addiction nutritionist Kelly Miller, who is a personal friend as well as a professional person that we work with, I was just on, we just recorded an, an episode of her podcast that I'm going to be on. I don't know when she's going to release it, but I'm pretty excited about it. it was, now,
1: what's your new podcast name?
0: Um, I, thanks. Sorry, Didn't write that down. It's her. Her handle is the Addiction Nutritionist, and I think it might be the Addiction Nutritionist podcast, but I'm not sure. But you could certainly
1: search yourself or search link Kelly. it in the show notes. She's is great. that Even an option?
0: She's <laughs> yes. I'll do that. Yes, I'll put in the show <laughs> notes a link to Kelly's podcast because I feel like an idiot right now. Um, you didn't
1: write that down. You didn't expect that question.
0: But she... One of the explanations for short-term relapses, meaning I have no intention to drink. All of a sudden I'm drinking and then within probably usually a day, maybe a, within a weekend, maybe sometimes a week, I am back on the sobriety bandwagon and so I would consider that to be a short-term relapse. One of the causes of those is blood sugar. When our blood sugar drops, our thinking goes moves from our prefrontal cortex, which is our human brain. That's the part of the brain that humans are the only animals that we have. You know, reasoning, logic, thought, planning. That happens in the prefrontal cortex when our blood sugar drops we go into survival mode and our thinking moves from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala which is the the survival brain the animal brain where we say uh oh something is wrong and i got to fix it and unfortunately for us long-term drinkers people who have exposed ourselves to lots and lots of alcohol we have also trained our brain to associate alcohol with survival hmm there's you know that that's a little bit more complex of an explanation i think the simplest way to explain that is because i used alcohol medicinally so stressed alcohol tired alcohol uh, got a bunch of work to get done alcohol having trouble sleeping alcohol any anything that wasn't going right with me i drank to fix it so i guess it's that's pretty straightforward why our brain would start to associate alcohol with survival a survival coping. instinct so we our blood sugar drops and we switch into our amygdala and our amygdala says get me any or all of the things i associate with survival could be food certainly could be alcohol um, and so that's why i've met lots of people who say you know i had no intention to drink my sobriety was going well I was working a program, all was fine, next thing I know I'm sitting in a liquor store parking lot drinking vodka out of the bottle and I don't know how or why I got there. Well, Kelly would explain that that's because you, your blood sugar dropped and you went into survival mode and you weren't thinking with your thinking brain and that's what happened. And so that can be an example of how sh- short term relapses happen. Interestingly, last week on the podcast we interviewed for a second time Amber Hollingsworth from the Put the Shovel Down YouTube channel. She is a addiction expert and licensed therapist and we did a little Q&A with her. Uh, episode 198 if anyone wants to go back and listen to it. But she said a couple of things that it was the first time I'd heard them and one of them that I want to highlight here she talked about when she's working with clients who are trying to find sobriety, it's really scary and dangerous when they have these short-term relapses because if you, if you just drink for a day or you just drink for a weekend and then you go back to sobriety, it's really easy to just weave that relapse into your recovery plan. You start to feel confident like, I know I can drink tonight and I am not going to die and I'm not going to just drink for the next six months. I can go off the rails and then pull myself out of the ditch tomorrow and move back on with my recovery plan. And so she said those are the people, those short term relapses are actually really scary as compared to the long term relapses. Did that take you by surprise when she said that?
1: That took me by surprise when she said that, because she also used the term that they think they're managing their sobriety.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're they they like oh well I'm and it gives them that false sense of confidence that I'm maybe not the drinker that they think that mm, I
0: am. Yeah, because I can you stop know? anytime I want. Because I can stop. Let me show you. Once a week I'll and drink and then
1: stop. Exactly. Well, and those are the people that they're like oh I just slipped. I just slipped. I wish that we would just say stop slipping. It's a relapse. Yes. If you say you're not doing something, you slip. Oh, you know you, sl- and then you drink. You just, yeah. it's a relapse. Yeah. So you know that's where, and then giving it a oops, cute little name, slip, had, slip. Oops, that's a I cute little, little and name. Had sex with
0: my secretary, but that's just a slip, Sherry. So I'm sure. You'll yeah, be okay and with that. I,
1: I won't have sex with her for at least another good six months. <laughs> yeah.
0: so, you're right. You're right.
1: So it's like giving it a kind of a cute name. I think it makes people feel a little bit better it makes the the alcoholic be like oh it was just a slip i just messed up once or twice but but when she said it is their thought process and their brain starts to associate well i can pull back from this that they think they can manage it mm-hmm. and i don't like the fact when people say oh and i don't i don't remember what program it is but you should count on having a couple relapses
0: yeah.
1: you know yeah like Oh, you should totally count on having a couple relapses. Really, why? Why do you have to count on that? Shouldn't you bank on yourself? Shouldn't you gamble on yourself to say, I'm not going to do that? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's just a lazy ass American excuse.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you're right. No, I actually, I had written in my notes how I am going to stop, when I'm communicating with people, I'm going to stop Giving them a pass when they call it a lapse or a slip because, well, here, here's part of the problem. Wait, I only. Lapse.
1: You can correct them and say, you mean a relapse, relapse yeah. and not just a lapse. Like,
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I only did that once. Right at the very beginning of this, my now mm-hmm. six and a half year of permanent sobriety, I, you and I had gotten in an argument and I did drink for one night and then went back to stopping but in all the 10 years of my active addiction the 10 years when I was trying to quit drinking all of my relapses with that one exception were you know drink for 9 months stop drinking for 3 months drink for 6 months stop drinking for 6 months they were all long term And And how? so when people have that I've gotten to know when they talk about lapses and slips and it was only a, a day or two days I haven't had anything to say back to them because, as everyone knows, I am not a trained professional. We're just learning the stuff as we go along. And since that was not my own personal experience, I've just given people a pass when they talk like that. But I'm not going to do that anymore. It's, there are two reasons. Amber's comment about this is one of the two reasons that I'm now recognizing these short-term relapses are more dangerous than the long-term. What were you gonna say? I was
1: just gonna ask, like, do you want to clarify your time frame when you say you're six and a half years sober? When you went back to drinking for that one night, how far into you this? How far into that sobriety were you?
0: Oh, like a month, so I'm yeah still six and a half okay. years. Yeah, I I'm not a day counter. I don't know how many days yeah. I am. Um, so it was January of what? I don't even know the seventeen was when I quit. Yeah, and I. Had one night within a few weeks of that yeah Did, am I taking you by surprise by that? Do you not remember that?
1: um, I don't remember that, but maybe it was also because it was so early on that I'm like, yeah, whatever, you yeah. just say what you want to say, and I'll believe you in your past night, oh months. yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you're you're drinking like when you quit six months twice and for nine months once, yeah, but there was a huge amount of time in between those like for the most part.
0: Of active drinking. Of active
1: drinking. Yes. So it wasn't like you quit for six months, drank for a month or two or even a month or a week and went back.
0: No, I would say in that 10 years, I drank most of that 10 years. Yeah. And my sobriety periods were shorter than my drinking periods. Yeah. Because, and let's, I want to make one more point about the short term before we go to the long term. Well, yeah, sure. But the the other reason that i'm recognizing that these short-term relapses are even, are really dangerous is i know multiple people now and I, this all just kind of solidified for me after hearing what amber said last week i know multiple people now who have had long-term periods of sobriety measured in years And then decided they could start drinking again. And now they are in this short-term relapse category and they can't stop it. Mm -hmm. It's a cycle. And it's people that I work with and I don't have anything to offer. Because I'm like, I I don't know what to tell you. I don't know why you drink one day a week. That doesn't register for me. That is not my experience. And I don't, especially, and so I always look at, this is, This is like an epiphany for me because I've always looked at it like this is someone who was sober for five years and now they're having these, just do whatever you did for those five years. Mm -hmm. But I really believe that there is something in our neuro wiring that says once you have dedicated a, a significant period of time to sobriety and then you go back to drinking, boy, that's more dangerous than if you had just stayed an active alcoholic the whole time, that period of sobriety, something about it makes quitting a second time harder. Mm -hmm. So for me, it just solidifies my decision to be sober because I I would never, oh my God, some of the cycles we know about where they drink once a week, that's awful. It's awful what it's doing to the family. I mean, just from what we do know with a great deal of confidence about neurochemistry is If you're doing that, if you've decided, ha ha, watch me, I'm going to drink every Friday night, I'm going to go off the rails, I'll make sure I'm not around my family, this is just my plan for the rest of my life, and then the other six days of the week I'm going to be sober. If you do that, you are not allowing your neurotransmitters to be corrected. And so your pleasure center will always be oriented toward alcohol.
1: Well, and then they'll be counting the days, like you said, when you when you withheld or yeah. abstained from drinking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah. You know, at the beginning of that plan, it was supposed to be Sunday night through Wednesday night, and then Thursday, your soccer buddy night drinking, and then the weekend, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. But you said all you could do was like anticipate those days, oh, yeah. it was those hours leading up. So yeah, you're right. You're just training yourself to say, "Oh, it's Friday night. I'm going to cut loose." And then I think about like the people that are are drinking in a shorter term. I'm sure they're most of them are binge drinking, and you know the bit like binge drinking is really really damaging because it's so much mm-hmm. at once. You know, hence the the binge drinking so much at once that it probably takes so long for your body to process that and the damage it does. I mean, like, when they've researched, you know, college students that binge drink, because that's how most college students do. Right. That sets you up for being an alcoholic later in life. Yes.
0: You
1: yeah. know, so that binge drinking is just keeping you. But you're right. Those neurotransmitters don't even have time to clear the, you know, clear out and reset.
0: Yeah, so all of this that we know about how brain chemistry works, we're now adding to it this mounting evidence of experiences we're having through other people that it, a former period of long-term sobriety followed by these short-term relapses is an amusement park ride you don't seem to be able to get off. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, because it's... It's terrifying. Yeah.
1: I mean, just think about it. What if you had a ritual that you're like, every, you know, even if it's healthy... You know how like your body gets trained to things. Yeah. If it's like every Saturday morning, you know, we go on a walk or a hike and then it's like rainy or you break your ankle and you can't do it. You're missing it because your body has gotten used to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's talk more about long term relapses. The kind of relapses that I experienced. This is a really dangerous time of year for those. And that's why I think the release of this podcast is very timely because so the summer that is just inherently risky for relapses because we've got a lot more outdoor activities that are alcohol centric and a lot more socializing that is alcohol centric. But this specific time of year is dangerous because we've come through a couple of what I like to describe as beer cooler and barbecue holidays. So Memorial Day, beer cooler and barbecue holiday, Independence Day. If you live in the same town with your family, those are probably family holidays for you. But for those of us who don't live in the same town with our family, we're not flying or driving a thousand miles to be with family for the 4th of July. That's just not even something that gets discussed. You know, the family holidays are Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter for us anyway. But so these are holidays that you typically spend with neighborhood people or friends or coworkers or like I said if you're in the same town with your family I'm sure your family gets together but you have if you're working on your sobriety and you've made it to July 10th which is I think when this episode is going to be released then you've been through a couple of these beer cooler and barbecue holidays and you've you know gritted your teeth and gotten through it And you're really in what equates to the dog days of summer for your sobriety. You were amped up to get through those holidays. Or maybe, you know, for us, we usually take family vacation in June. So maybe for others, too, you've been through your family vacation for the summer. And you're sitting there going, yeah, and what did all that get me? You know, I I stayed sober through these periods. But now i still got the second half of summer, or the majority of summer, and all I can think about is how it's not fair that I don't get to drink when everyone else is, does. There's still lots more summer left. There's lots more opportunities where I could you know, make a change and decide I've got, I'm going to put some new rules around my drinking. I'm going to figure out a way to make it happen and uh, re-engage with the alcohol and I'm sure for someone like you I want to get your reaction, for someone like you I'm sure that just sounds ridiculous, but for me it would feel like okay, I got through these tough things and where did it get me I'm still sad, I'm still deprived, I'm still the only one on my block who can't drink, I'm still having warm summer Saturday afternoons where I don't know what to do with myself and I want to enjoy those, so why am I staying sober? Does that just sound ridiculous to you?
1: Yes. Um, and I know that you have said on the podcast and in conversations with people in our groups that sometimes, like, getting through the event and white-knuckling it through and getting through the event sober was fine. But then it's a day or two days later where, like, probably the adrenaline crash
0: almost. Yep. like that's exactly right.
1: And that that's when you relapse or that's when you decide you're going to just not going to be a sober person anymore and you're going to put all these rules and you're going to be the the guy that can drink again with his friends but in a more controlled way. I mean that's usually what would happen you know for you in a lot of scenarios. Um I think like you've explained like and I mean you had times where you had shorter you know intermittent like uh, you know I'm gonna be sober, and you're sober for a couple weeks, and then you're like, "No, I'm gonna just have a new set of rules." Right. You know, over those 20 years of drinking, Um, so I'm sure that's got to play a part into it. But I always laugh when you say you're coming into a season of drinking because you and I have shared. There's always a season. There's always there's
0: just different reasons. That's why I wanted to explain what, in my opinion, in my experience. That's what's going on right now. Yeah, exactly. I made right it all now. over all these humps and where did what did this get me exactly? Yeah. I'm still miserable.
1: Yeah. You know, the family's still not happy, we're still bickering, I still feel yeah, you know, still don't feel connected to yeah. my partner. All of that.
0: Yeah. So I I know that you and I know that our listeners who are on your side of the fence probably don't have a worrisome anticipation that the drinking is coming, that the relapse is coming based on those factors, based on the fact that we're through two beer cooler and barbecue holidays, and we've taken our summer vacation, and the dog days are in front of us, but I also know that you, and probably a lot of people who are listening from your side of the fence, are still anticipating the relapse. Mm -hmm. You just don't know why. Yeah. You don't know what's going on in our heads. What is that like for you? What was that like for you when I had some period of sobriety but you just you were just waiting for it to come? Was there any sense of confidence that I was going to make it and stay sober or was it just like constant pins and needles? What was it like for you?
1: Um well, I mean it has been a while. I think that you I think when you had like your 6 month and 9 month I probably felt more confident, and it came out of nowhere when you were like talking about drinking again towards the end of those um, points of sobriety. That I was like, "What? My God! You you made it this long? Like what? What? You know?" So it would always be like dumbfounded, a feeling of dumbfounded. Like I just can't see it. You you did it for s- so long. I mean, yes, and we often now joke and say six months isn't a long time, but. Back then, I'm thinking, six months is a long time. Um, but we now understand it's not. Um, I always felt like you held all the
0: cards. That's important. What do you mean by that?
1: I I had no power over it. It was not mine to control. And it made me feel like the relationship was in a complete imbalance I would often say to you, um, what is the word that I would always
0: use? Like, oh, um, double standard. Yes.
1: That, that there is a double standard between you and I, and you could not get it. Because that's the only feeling I could say. I felt like you had the power, you had the control. Our lives were a double standard according to what you decided it, you wanted. Yeah. Because, you, you know, you could say, well, now I'm going to be sober, so now you've got to do all these things right. Sherry
0: you got to support me you got
1: to support me you got to do all these and you got to behave right and you got to talk to me right and you, you know all this BS and I'm like oh and then I can't have a shitty day you know and when I do have a shitty day or when I'm sick you know like it didn't matter but yeah you had all the power
0: and, and just to be clear we're not talking about now we do have a very traditional relationship in a lot of ways but in the, in the description that you're giving right there, we're not talking about some the man makes the rules yeah, kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah,
1: not like if, that.
0: I had the power because you had no control over whether or not I put alcohol to my lips.
1: And if you put alcohol... I was al- the
0: only one that yeah. was making that decision.
1: And and I didn't have a say. I, I couldn't say, no, you can't drink. What's my defense about that? You know, I mean, I could have said, "No, you can't drink," and if you drink, then I will be gone with the children. Yeah, I could say all that, but I I also I felt like you just controlled like the happiness and the mood in the house. Yeah, like because you could, you know, we could work really hard on being gone, and we could work really hard on trying to ignore you, but you're a big elephant in the room, and we can't ignore you. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot that we had to navigate. And I had to navigate with the kids and try to make things fun. I mean, we could have been doing something fun. And I know it was one of your times that you had that long-term sobriety, whether it was a six or nine month. We, I know it was ridiculous, but we went to, like, this um, sort of, like, local amusement park in St. Paul, in, or in St. Louis. And I think it's, like, run by Budweiser.
0: Yeah. I think it's, it's not Bush Gardens. No, not Bush Gardens, but it, Budweiser. I don't know, but it was like
1: an amusement park. That's where they
0: kept the Clydesdales.
1: Yeah, and it was just like we were going to go do that because I was like... big farm. Yeah, I don't know. We'll put that in the show notes
0: too. (laughs) Oh, thanks for the assignment. I'm not looking that up. (laughs) I'm
1: just saying this is where not to take someone in like sobriety. that
0: was a bad idea. So,
1: you know, because we just didn't understand. This is how naive we were. But I thought, you haven't been drinking for a long time at that point, whether it was... It's five months or four months or seven months or whatever. Yeah. And we're doing this with the kids. You, you can just avoid the beer gardens, you know, whatever. Obviously, I have a lot of negativity in my brain for some reason at times. But I thought, well, that would be fun while you were miserable. Yeah. Well, and it came out like it didn't matter. Like, or at the zoo. They serve beer at the zoo now, or skiing. Yeah. Couldn't go anywhere without seeing somebody even. Cracking a can of PBR on the slopes. You know, so it was like nowhere you could go, you could escape it. Right. So then that would just be a reminder of what you can't have, so therefore you were just miserable to be around. And that was not fair to any of us in the family. Correct. So, you know, that's where I mean that you had the power.
0: Well, I think think it's also important... When we talk about what your experience was like pre-relapse, when I was in periods of sobriety, the anticipation, the worry, the keeping your guard up, the waiting for the inevitable, that's all part of it. But there's also really important point you made that didn't make it into my notes because I didn't think of this. really important point that you made is being around a miserable cuss who's in early sobriety is not exactly a fun time, even if they are staying the course. So not only are you anticipating the inevitable drinking, but you're also, you just forced to be around this sad sack that's glomming onto you for support and telling you, you know, gosh, I'm doing this hard thing. You're not doing anything over there, Sherry. Uh, while you're not doing anything, why don't you spend some time supporting me? So I had no understanding of what recovery was going to look like for you. I had no understanding of the trauma that you and the kids had both been through. And the work that you needed to do, so all I could think was, "Yeah, I'm making everyone miserable. It's because you're not working hard enough to make me happy." Mm-hmm.
1: And it's not my job to make you happy. Which and there we was didn't no at the time. Right. I didn't know at the time. and there was nothing I could do that was gonna make you happy.
0: True. And that. We didn't
1: know that. Yeah. I mean, and I was, I didn't understand like what was so different when you explained to me how great you felt about drinking. All I could anticipate. Was, oh, yeah, I'm sure that makes sense, but then you're totally going to be like, I'm going to, th- m- my experience would be, I'm going to be having a headache or hungover the next day. How is that any fun? Like, what's the point? Yeah. You know, and I didn't get that sort of euphoric feeling. Yeah. And it didn't squash all of my pain.
0: Yeah. Yep. So if you have a, a partner who does the long term relapse thing like I did and the long term sobriety periods thing like I did, then the sober periods aren't really any better than the drinking periods. They're just different. It's a different form of misery.
1: And that's one reason when you were getting sober this last time and you've had that sobriety for six and a half months, that's why we kind of cleared the calendar. We learned that you couldn't go and hang out with people that were drinking. We couldn't put you in environments where people were drinking. Right. And sick and sadly, you're family didn't even fucking try to support Ooh, you. Jeez. How do
0: you feel about that I'm Sherry? a little pissed. I now in fairness. But you I were think like, they uh, asked. I think they asked. Okay. I think they asked if they needed to like when we spent the week with them that summer, I think they asked if they needed it to be alcohol free and they were willing to do that if we did. But listen, every alcoholic I know at 6 months is going to tell everyone, "No, I'm fine. I got this. No worries." Don't change a thing. And part of that is because we have this false sense of confidence. But the other reason is we don't want to be disruptive to anyone. Talk about shame and guilt. Yeah. Well, if I make make it so that the 10 people I'm going to be on vacation with can't drink either, I'll feel awful about myself. That's probably a bigger trigger for relapse than just watching those people drink for a week. Yeah. Be worse if they weren't drinking. Well, that's a good point. Thank you for
1: pointing that out. I'm sure even if they did ask you and you said no, that's fine, they certainly didn't slow down according to what I remember.
0: Well, yes. Maybe
1: they were, uh, maybe they did, I don't know. Or Um, maybe, you know.
0: Understandable that it, you know. That period, th- there's a lot of heartburn for both of us. Yeah.
1: Well, but I think like that's why it was important to clear your calendar Yeah, for a month from social engagements and parties. or for sorry, for a year. Because it's just, it's too hard to be around.
0: Yeah, it is. And now, so you- something like that, like clearing your calendar for a year, that might sound, I mean, terrifying. What do you mean, clear my calendar? And what we mean by that is, make a list of social events that you typically do in the calendar year. And then anyone that you don't absolutely feel compelled that you have to be there, cross it off the list. Make an excuse, that's fine. If you're, not, if you're not ready to be open and honest about your sobriety, that's totally cool. I wasn't ready early on. So make an excuse. Say you've got a conflict. Say you've got a you know, a, 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 you've got to take someone to the airport or you're on antibiotics or whatever you want to use for the reason that you're Not going to attend uh, the event, but don't just not drink at the event. Don't attend the event if you can get away with it. And so
1: also sometimes you don't have to make an excuse. No is a complete sentence. I
0: know, but you're Mm -hmm. you're talking about a sense of well, that's when you talk to your spouse. You talk to your spouse and you let your
1: spouse deal
0: with it. Yeah, I mean now, yeah, like you didn't even know
1: that there were invitations that I
0: didn't even, and that had been
1: going on for years behind your back. Things
0: for me and. And I think in an appropriate way. Yeah. You kept me from, you protected me from myself in early sobriety in a lot of ways. Smart. But yeah, so clear that calendar in every way possible for that first year of sobriety because you need a lot of time to get over the hump. And, that, that actually transitions really well into the last point that I want to make on this discussion about relapse. It's really easy to get the Eeyores, get the woe is me about looking at, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought sobriety was just a decision I make. And once I'm firm in my decision, I'm done with it. Going from that, which was my initial impulse about what sobriety meant, I just, I just, I'm determined I'm determined, I've decided, and I don't go back on my decisions, and I'm an honest person, so there, it's over. Going from that to a realistic understanding of how brain chemistry takes a year for it to adjust back, and cravings take months, and all of this stuff that you've got to, be, to go through, it's really, really easy to say, oh my God, that's a long time, that sounds miserable, and get really depressed, and you can get depressed from both sides of it. You can get depressed... From your side of it, Sherry, if you've been through these periods of sobriety that all resulted in relapse, and say, How long does this guy have to go before I can start to let my guard down, before my nervous system will fix, will start to repair, before I stop walking on eggshells? How long do I have to go supporting him with no support for me? And so thinking of these time frames can get really depressing, but I'm here to say, I think you're looking at it all wrong if you're looking at it that way. In our example, our life and our marriage gets to be on this long upward trajectory, right? So the beginning of my sobriety was miserable, fair enough. And that lasted for a long time, a year plus. The first couple of years were pretty miserable. But the second year was better than the first, right? And the third better than the second, and the fourth better than the third. And here we are in our seventh year of sobriety, and our relationship's never been stronger. I've never felt better as an individual human, and I'd argue that you've never felt better as an individual human. Would you agree or disagree with that? I would agree. Yeah? More yeah. confidence, more comfort and contentment?
1: More comfort and contentment, and that I'm not having to worry.
0: There is a worry-free
2: Like life that we live. I mean, yeah, there are worries, but I don't have to worry about how you're gonna behave. How your drinking is gonna affect everybody. And that you have, you know, a lot of years under your belt. And that I can talk to you now, and I can let my guard down, and I can share with you things that are hurting or uncomfortable or don't put me in the best light. Like, just a few moments ago when I was mad saying your family didn't even try to stop drinking that first year you know like that you're not gonna get mad at me about it later on Yeah, that I'm not gonna somehow look bad in your eyes because you um, have like really assessed yourself and others in a way that Like, you have a lot more empathy and sympathy and compassion for people now, whereas you were very quick to judge in those years of drinking and early sobriety. So, yeah, I think that I'm better because you're better. Because, again, in a relationship, I feel like... And this might be classified as codependence, but I don't feel like that's, you know a terrible thing. If you're miserable, then I'm eventually going to be miserable.
0: Yes. Back to like you said, I was the big elephant in the room and I could bring the whole family down agreed. But you could do that too. Yeah. But also you know, it's not all just dependent on me. You had to do your own work in recovery. Yeah. And you did that. Yeah. And And you didn't do that right away because we didn't know you were supposed to do it right away. But that kind of... I mean, that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make. We figured this out piece by piece. And every year has gotten better. Every... I won't say every day is better than the day before. That's way too Pollyanna and incorrect. But if you take chunks of time that are big enough to average them out then yes, every, um, I don't know, maybe every month is better than the previous month-ish, right? But every year for sure has been better than the previous year. And so if you're at the point of this is, if you're at the starting point, if you're thinking, oh my God, my spouse is newly sober, and I don't know if my spouse is going to make it over the hump to long-term sobriety or not, but let's just say for a second that they do, this is going to be a miserable year, and next year it sounds like it's going to be pretty miserable. That's a very negative way of looking at it. You could also look at it that every year going forward is going to be better than the one you're in now, and every year it's going to be better, way better than the one you were in last year. And you know, obviously, we're assuming that the sobriety sticks. Mm-hmm. But I just, well, yours, I, I yours, would just discourage people from looking at recovery as this. Thing with a start date and an end date. How long is this going to take? When is the misery going to be over? The misery is going to gradually decline as you move forward. And it's going to be replaced with joyful and peaceful and contented moments. Until pretty soon, not pretty soon, eventually, the joyful, peaceful, contented will outweigh the misery. We know lots of people who are in years of sobriety. And the spouses are like, oh, but I still, this thing still happened. And I, and we've, we go, we have ups and downs. And, and all I'm saying is, I bet the ups are more now than they used to be. They're not where you want them to be, but keep going. Fair enough? Yeah. Do you want to talk about how also that our sex life is better than it's ever been? Even better than when we were like 22 years old and, all, you know, young and horny.
1: Well, 22-year-old boys don't
0: know anything. Hmm. Well, that's also something that gets better if, if you work at it in sobriety. Looks like we're out of time, Sherry. Otherwise, we could delve Thank into that God. topic. <laughs> Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources.
1: If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery
0: group. Check us out at EchoesofRecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at ShoutSobriety.org.
1: No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org.
0: For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.